This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 5th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about scaling up a biofuel, and David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Cellulosic ethanol is a type of biofuel produced from the usually non-usable parts of plants, wood chips, hardy grasses, corn stalks. It's called cellulosic because it's made by breaking down lignocellulose, the bulk of the biomass in most plants. The road to making cellulosic fuels widely available has been a tough one. I spoke with science news writer Bob Service about the journey to the first large-scale cellulosic ethanol plant and what happens next. Cellulosic ethanol is ethanol, which is an alcohol that is used as a transportation fuel. Most ethanol is made from sugar. You start with sugar, and then you feed it to yeast in a fermentation tank and the yeast convert that sugar into ethanol. And that's how alcohol is made for alcohol that people drink, but it's also the same, similar process that people use for making ethanol for fuel. Now, cellulosic ethanol doesn't use sugar as a starting material. It uses the non-edible parts of plants, things like corn stalks or agricultural waste or forestry waste, And those plants are made up of the main polymer, the main material that gives plants their structure, 
are polymers called cellulose and hemicellulose. And these are long, complex chains of sugar molecules that are linked together. So decades ago, people had the idea, okay, great, well, why don't we just start with this agricultural waste material, unzip all those chains, get to the sugars, feed those to the yeast, and then make a fuel, a transportation fuel. It's a great idea, but it's actually quite challenging and quite difficult. If you start with agricultural waste, let's say corn stalks and corn cobs and corn stover, to turn that material then into a fuel, you first have to collect it, lots of it. You have to transport it. You have to then grind it up. After that, you have to treat the agricultural waste with either strong acids or bases or things like that that begin to break down that cellulosic material into something a little more easier to work with. Once you've done that, you then add a batch of enzymes. These are proteins that are naturally made by organisms that can then break down those biopolymers so to get to the sugars. After you've then unzipped all those polymers and gotten the sugars, then you can take it to a fermentation plant and feed it to the yeast to get ethanol. Is corn ethanol made in a similar way, just the second half of the process? So in the United States, almost all ethanol is made that you start with corn kernels, and the material that you can use for ethanol production is starch, and you add enzymes to degrade those corn kernels and convert them to sugars that the yeast can then use to to make to ethanol. And that's the standard way it's done. So if you want to compete with that, somehow you've got to do all those other steps. All that has to be as cheap or nearly as cheap as doing it just with corn kernels. And that's been the real challenge for the field. Today we're talking about the opening of a major facility, which is a big milestone in the long journey to get cellulosic technology scaled up and that output into markets. What were some of the steps that brought the cost down of these treatments and and made it competitive with other sources of fuel? Well, we'll have to see if it's going to be competitive. The real question is going to be whether or not these large-scale plants succeed. Mm -hmm. So this new plant that we're talking about actually opens this week in Iowa, and it will eventually produce 25 million gallons of fuel a year. And the question is, is will they eventually be able to have costs that are competitive with conventional ethanol? As for the challenges that were overcome to get to this point, there's a whole class of tasks that people do called pretreatment. And this is the area where you might add acids or bases or things like that to begin to break down these cellulosic materials. So there's a lot of research over the last couple of decades on the best way to do that. And then another really big one was in the cocktail of enzymes that people use to convert the biomass into the sugars that yeast can then turn into ethanol. So those are the real main ones. And then there's been a lot of logistic ones. And there's certainly a lot of engineering challenges building the plants and how do you construct it in a way that's going to be efficient. A lot of people have been urging along cellulosic technologies because it's seen as more sustainable than other fuels. What are some of the arguments in favor of it? What are the positives? Well, the big positives are that you have a renewable source of fuel. It's non-fossil fuel-based. That means that you could arguably reduce greenhouse gases and CO2 by as much as 90% compared to the fuel generated from petroleum. So that's a big one. Certainly, national security is a big one. Less reliance on places in the world you don't necessarily want to get involved with. 
another advantage is the scale. So because there's so much agricultural and forestry waste, there's potentially a lot of fuel. There's been a number of range of estimates, but one by Sandia National Lab suggested that by 2030, the United States could produce 75 billion gallons of cellulosic ethanol per year. And that's about half of the fuel consumption in the United States for transportation fuel. So the U.S. currently uses about 133 billion gallons of gasoline a year. That's a big number. Right. What does the market look like for an increase in available cellulosic ethanol? I mean, we're just talking about one plant here, but maybe being ramped up over time, there would be more and more of it available. The answer to that question is a bit complex. On the most basic level, it could be if these plants do truly prove to be cost-efficient, then you can imagine the technology will spread quite readily, and not just in the United States, but around the world. But how much cellulosic ethanol you would make depends on how much you can use. So in the United States right now, ethanol is blended into gasoline, and that's been done for a long time because ethanol has a high oxygen content, and that helps a gasoline blend with ethanol burn more cleanly, which reduces smog. So it's been used in that manner for a long time. Currently in the United States, they blend 10% ethanol to 90% gasoline, and that's called E10. We just a minute ago, we were talking about how much gasoline we use in the United States, and right now it's around 133, 134 billion gallons a year. So 10% of that is 13.3 to 13.4 billion gallons of ethanol. That is what they call the E10 limit for right now. It will only go up if you either use more gasoline and therefore blend in more ethanol, or if you increase the blend, say, to E15 or E20, or there's even cars that can run on something called E85. These are so-called flex-fuel cars. So those are all options. Now, the actual amount of gasoline that's been used in the United States has been declining modestly, and so that means the amount of ethanol that the gasoline refiners can blend in has been going down. Today, all that ethanol that we use is provided by corn ethanol producers, they actually right now make more than that, and they sell about a billion gallons of it overseas. If you start opening a whole bunch of cellulosic ethanol plants, where's that ethanol going to go? So it gets a little bit complicated, and the market is dictated by public policy for what those blends should be. The public policy is being made by the administration and by the EPA. What's been their role so far, and how does it look like government regulation will impact the future of cellulosic ethanol? It will impact it for sure, and it's not clear yet which way it's going to go. In 2007, Congress set out the benchmarks for how much of different renewable fuels it wanted the industry to add until 2022, I believe, eventually getting up to 36 billion gallons of renewable fuels. Back in 2007, when Congress laid out those plans, it had envisioned that by 2014, we would already be incorporating 1.75 billion gallons of cellulosic ethanol into the fuel stream. Now, that hasn't happened, partly because fuel use has declined, also because the 2008 recession really knocked the feet out of a lot of the investment community that was considering investing in cellulosic ethanol and really set the whole field back several years. Now they're dipping their toes back in. These facilities that some of these companies are producing now are expensive facilities on the order of $200 million, $250 million to build one of these things. 
the investment community is starting to come back in, but it's a slow process. And they've also had to bring the cost down of the fuels. The government had a certain expectation of how much ethanol was going to be consumed, and it hasn't been met. Are they adjusting the requirements or regulations in response to that? They do. So one of the ways they adjust that is the EPA has the authority every year to set the amount of ethanol that will be blended in. And it, it basically tries to figure out how much will be produced and then says, okay, we'll make the requirements to blend this amount in. Congress had said, you know, we want 1.75 billion gallons of cellulosic ethanol by 2014. Clearly, that's not going to have that. So EPA waives most of those requirements, but in, in their place, they put in a set of rules where companies, the blenders or fuel importers or whoever, you have to have something called renewable identification numbers. So these are called RINs, and folks have to pay for these. So the bottom line is if it's cheaper to just buy a RIN on the open market, companies will do that. And if the fuel isn't available, if the fuel becomes available, say cellulosic ethanol is available, if it is cheaper for a fuel blender to just go out and buy RINs on the open market, they will do that. And if it's not, if the ethanol producers can produce it cheaply enough, then those blenders will just go ahead and buy the fuel directly. And the way that's gone thus far is that the RINs and the credits that these blenders have to buy are typically around a dollar a gallon for cellulosic ethanol. So the wholesale cost of gasoline is now around $2.80 a gallon. So the extra RINs and credits and everything they have to buy bring the cost up to about 380 So the key question for the field going forward is, will these new plants be able to produce cellulosic ethanol for less than $3.80 a gallon? If they can, then it's likely to succeed, at least on the commercial level. But that's only going to be true if the regulators decide to create a place for cellulosic ethanol to go. It's a bit unclear where this is all going to go, but we probably, within a couple of years, should have a pretty good idea of whether or not cellulosic ethanol is going to make it. Okay. Well, are there a lot more plants coming online in those next couple of years? I think a lot of the big money is going to wait on the sidelines. They're just going to see how this plays out, let others take the risk. Bob, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much. Bob Service is a science news writer at our Pacific Northwest Bureau. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our online daily news site, and he's here to share some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on dying languages. We often hear statistics on animal extinctions, but what about the loss of languages? Let's start with the rates, Dave. How many languages are there now, and how fast are we losing them? Well, Sarah, there's about 7,000 known languages in the world, and we're actually losing them very rapidly. We're actually losing languages faster than we're losing species. And we're losing species pretty fast. It's estimated that a different tongue dies out about every two weeks. Going into this study, there was anecdotal evidence that the decline of languages might actually be linked to economic growth. Basically, the idea that if you want to succeed, you better speak the dominant language. How did the researchers look into some of the causes in a more systematic way? Well, they went to this online repository called the Ethnolog, which tracks most of the world's major languages. And there's actually, to be exact, there's six 
6,909 languages in the world, or at least maybe this week there's 6,908 languages in the world. But the researchers wanted to get a lot of information, where the languages were prevalent, any trends over time, factors that might influence them. And they were actually only able to get enough information for about 9% of these languages, which is about 650 languages. And then they took a closer look. They looked at things like how economic development affects languages, also things like uh, geography, factors such as altitude, which can contribute to language loss by affecting how easily communities can communicate with each other and, and travel. And when they looked at everything, they found that indeed it was economic growth that seemed to be the largest driver of language loss. And what about geography? Were there any hotspots for language loss? Yeah, it turns out that these declines occur faster in temperate climates than in the tropics or in mountainous regions. And that may be because it's easier to travel in and out of temperate regions, which would separate these people and cause them to lose their language. Now that we know about these relationships, these correlations between location and economics, can anything be done to reverse the process? Well, the hope is if we can identify the factors that we will find ways to save some of these languages. Now, we're not going to be able to reverse economic growth, but the hope is if there's a language that's found to be dying off, then perhaps there might be some measures that can be taken to save it. Next up, we have a story on ecstasies. When an insect undergoes ecstasies, or molting, it sheds its entire exoskeleton. Once naked, the bug expands and begins to harden a new coating around itself. This is how things with hard outer shells are able to grow and has been known about for a long time. But somehow this process has made the news. So what's new, Dave? <laughs> What's new is that this process, which we already knew was pretty traumatic, insects will stop eating, many lie still, they become more vulnerable to predators, is even more traumatic than we thought. In fact, it appears that molting is a lot like having your lungs ripped out. Okay, so could you be a little bit more specific there? <laughs> well, the researchers in this day looked at mayflies, and these are aquatic insects. They breathe with gills after oxygen diffuses from the water, passes into this branching network of ever smaller airways called tracheals, which deliver the gas to the cells of the insects, helps them to breathe. What happens during molting is that when the larvae slip out of their exoskeleton, at least these mayfly larvae slip out of their exoskeleton, the lining of these tracheals comes with it which is essentially like having their lungs ripped out. And what's really traumatic about that is they actually can't breathe for a very long time. How long are these insects actually going for without oxygen? Well, first of all, they take a big breath before this happens. So in the three to four hours before molting, these larvae consume about 41% more oxygen than normal. Then they stop breathing for about 45 minutes to an hour while wow. their exoskeletons slide off. So imagine holding your breath for an hour. And once their tracheals are cleared, the oxygen consumption spikes again. They take that big breath in again. Is there any evidence that this uh, O2 deprivation is actually bad for them? Well, there's some speculation that a lot of insects die during the molting process because they essentially suffocate, although that hasn't been proven. But one of the concerns with that is that as the world warms, these insects are going to require a lot more oxygen. That's just what happens with rising temperature. So if you need a lot more oxygen and you're deprived of oxygen, there's the concern that this could lead to a lot of insect death. Lastly, we have a story on adding up all the mercury. The element mercury is a dangerous neurotoxin, but we humans have been digging it out of the ground and spreading it all over the surface of the planet for centuries. In recent years, governments have clamped down on the flow of mercury into the environment, but not before tons and tons of the stuff are released. 
How much mercury is out there, Dave? Well, there's a lot more than we thought. In fact, about two and a half times more than we thought. Previous estimates have only looked at mercury in the atmosphere. We know that uh, about 720,000 metric tons of mercury has been taken out of the ground since 1850. This is when there was a lot of silver and gold mining. But since then, this mercury has been used in products from thermometers to electric switches and various industrial processes. Also, coal contains trace amounts of mercury. So when you're burning coal in coal plants, this spews a lot of mercury into the atmosphere. So we know mercury levels have been rising since the Industrial Revolution, which is when all these processes have been taking place. We just don't know the contribution of all the sources. So this new study actually tried to track down some of the sources, what their contributions have been, kind of the history of mercury releases into the environment. What were they able to figure out? This was really the most comprehensive effort that's been done to figure out how much mercury is out there in the environment and where is it all coming from. So the researchers looked beyond just the mercury that's being emitted into the atmosphere, but they also really focused on the mercury that's being used in consumer products and industrial manufacture, the kind of mercury that would leach out into the environment and potentially cause harm. And what they saw was that, indeed, a lot of these sources contributed a lot of this mercury that had been missing from previous analyses. What was really interesting is they found this big spike in mercury emissions into the environment in the 1970s. And they think that that's because there was a lot of mercury being used in consumer products, especially products like paint. Paint actually used to contain quite a bit of mercury, and it wasn't until the 1990s that that was phased out of paint, at least in in the U.S. Um, And the team was actually able to account for 540,000 metric tons of more mercury in the environment than had been accounted for before, including mercury that had leached into soil and water, which is about two and a half times more than had been found in previous estimates. Now we know more about what's in the environment. Does this actually have an impact on our understanding of the health risks associated with environmental contamination? Actually, it doesn't because we already knew where the mercury that hurts us was coming from and what those levels were. Most of the mercury we consume is actually in fish, and researchers already have a pretty good handle about how many fish are contaminated with mercury and how that gets into the human food supply. What this news really does is it gives us a much more comprehensive look about where all the mercury that's out there is partitioned and, and specifically where it's coming from. So what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, sir, we've got a story about fish that spit at their prey to capture them. Also a story about the sequencing of the coffee genome and how it's revealing where all that caffeine comes from. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got the latest on the Ebola outbreak. Also a story about why an asteroid paper was retracted. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science Site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.